Greetings, ladies and metalgents, and welcome to this latest rendition of Tales from Outer Space. Taken from the subreddit HFY, all the relevant links will be down below. And as always, I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Now, on to the science fiction. Story Double One Human Power Systems, written by Crumb JD. Taken from a life in the diplomatic corps, the autobiography of Trek and Kesk. I met the human shortly after the Cracticon incident, though it's never been officially confirmed for me. I think the two things were related. I think after the, um, events I relate surrounding the psychological assessment that followed the Cracticon, the head office decided that I needed a bit of a break, and my posting to the joint human vitine colonization effort of M1830Q was intended to be that break. By that point, humans had been a part of the galactic civilization for about three quarters of one of their generations, and a signatory of the Articles of Confederation for two-thirds of that time. They first encountered other species when they built their own terminus station and the Galax connected to it before they could send their own remote end to another star and fire it up. It was a shock for them, of course, but since they had the same plateau-level technology as everyone else in the galaxy, and they knew that interplanetary war couldn't possibly be waged through a terminus gate, they got over it pretty quickly. I always liked human adaptability. On M-130Q, they were putting their very best face forward. They sent a crew of colonists who had been carefully vetted for relevant skills and exemplary citizenship. The Vettine, of course, were the Vettine, so we weren't expecting any diplomatic incidents. The embassy was mostly pro forma, and for the first couple of years, I was able to relax in my villa, occasionally doing routine paperwork, while our stalwart crew of colonists did the hard work of taming the new world for civilization. The first time I was truly needed was three years in, by which time I really was feeling better. When the Vettine Minister of Technology burst into my villa in the middle of the night, positively raging, his antenna were rigid. His eyes jittered in their sockets, and his carapace was flushed magenta. By way of greeting, he yelled, The humans! They are going to build a fusion reactor, and they want a budget billions of credits for it. What? What's fusion? Why is that bad? Fusion is what powers stars. Two atoms combine into a single heavier atom, and a little bit of mass is released as energy. The humans want to build a fusion power plant. They say that it'll take care of the planet's energy needs until the population is at roughly 64 times its current level. During this explanation, the minister waved his pseudo feet around so much that he almost hit me five times. Alright, uh, that sounds like a good idea and cost effective if it'll last half as long as they say. Uh, why don't we let them? Because it's impossible. Every race discovers fusion. Every race decides it's a great power source, every race spends decades or even centuries trying to make it work, and every race eventually learns it just can't be done. This is some sort of human scam. I managed to calm the minister down, mostly by asking him technical questions. 
Take note, dear reader, technical experts love to talk tech. It is as soothing to them as a mother's re-embark. By the end of our conversation, he was no longer ready to strangle the human secretary of infrastructure, and I had the basic grasp of the problem. It's apparently quite easy to start and contain a fusion reaction in a gravetic or magnetic bottle, but powering the bottle takes more energy than the reaction produces. If you try and hold it together with just lasers, you'll find the wave-particle duality makes that too unpredictable. If you chase more efficient lasers, magnets, or grab emitters, you'll find that they just don't exist. In short, if you like fusion power, start with a great big ball of hydrogen floating in space. I scheduled a meeting with the human secretary of infrastructure. Well, sure, that's all true, Mike said, scratching his beard. But you're talking about traditional fusion. We want to build a pulsed fusion plant. Pulsed fusion? Right. In terms that you've just used, we get around the whole, uh, it takes more power to sustain and stabilize than you get out thing by not doing either. Instead, uh, we use a fission reactor to trigger a pulse of fusion that just runs its course and dies out. The energy isn't fed directly into the next cycle. Though, in a roundabout way, it eventually gets there. I nodded again. I suppose it must be rare if they haven't heard of it. Still, just dig up a few examples, and we should be able to put this whole thing behind us. Mike shook his head. I think they're right about only humans having the tech. That made my sonar box tighten, and for the first time, I considered that the humans might really be up to the oldest scam in the book. New technology. There is no such thing, dear reader. If someone tries to sell you technology scavenged from an ancient ship, or imported from a new and distant race, or uh, kept secret by some government, show them the door. Galactic civilization has existed for billions of years, and it spans tens of billions of worlds. All that can be known is known. I was about to angrily explain that to the secretary when he said the one thing that could have cut me off. Would you like to see it in action? During our descent from space, the human homeworld certainly looked like a place a race of extraordinary engineers might live. They had more terminus gates in orbit than some races that had been in the Confederacy for thousands of years, and dozens of beanstalks stretched into orbit, allowing continuous streams of traffic to flow to and from space. Almost as tall as the beanstalks were the humans' megastructures skyscrapers and city buildings that stood tall above the clouds which swirled around their bases. Still, I had to assume there was in the midst of some misunderstanding, or even a scam, until I noticed one particular feature of the planet. Where are all your farms? Huh? Mike responded. Then he seemed to realize what he was asking. Oh, uh, you were expecting to see old-styled fields, I bet. We don't have those anymore. If you think about it, traditional farming is just a form of solar power. Plants soak up the sunlight and store it as sugar. Solar electric power was tried before pulse fusion, but it took up too much area and required too much infrastructure to be especially effective. 
Once pulse fusion really got going and proved so efficient, we began to genetically engineer our crops to synthesize sugar from electrical current. The farms are all inside now, and that has allowed us to return much of the surface area of the planet to wilderness. Nice, huh? As a safety feature, the human power plant was built in a caldera of an extinct volcano out in one of the world's oceans. They'd proposed something similar for M1830Q. That was the one part of the plan that no one had objected to. Still, I wouldn't have recognized it for a mountain at all without Mike's explanation. It mostly looked like a single, enormous and incredibly durable building. We were waved through layer after layer of security to the very heart of the power plant, the observation deck over the main reaction chamber. It was an extraordinary sight, one of the more amazing things my diplomatic career gave me access to. Below us stretched an enormous underground lake. It should have been dark and foreboding, except the entire cavern was awash in the scintillation of Cherenkov radiation. It immediately put me in mind of some fable deep underground, filled with roots and magic directly out of my people's legends. It also put me in mind of the radiation dosage pad a security guard had pinned to my sash at the outer door of the plant. That was fortunately still light-colored. Mike must have seen me looking because he said, Don't worry, we're well sealed away from the radiation here. There's actually two lakes. The lower one is the reaction chamber. It's about as hot as you'd expect from a main reactor of a nuclear power plant that feeds power to an entire eastern seaboard. That water actually functions as a breeder reactor. The upper lake is seawater pumped directly up from the floor of this ocean. It's clean, cold, and blocking any errant high-energy particles. All the wires you see stretching up out of it are thermocouples. That's how we make the electricity. Pulse in T-60. A loud human voice stated over the intercom system. Darken your visor, Mike said. My what? I asked, bumbling around at the contraption the humans had fitted over my head earlier. Pulse in T-30. Quickly! Mike sounded agitated, then he reached up and poked something on the side of my head. The world went dark, which was a little unsettling, though I still had my sonar. Pulse in T-20. Sorry about that. The human visors are all radio-controlled, but yours is a bit of an ad hoc. You have to press the button. The light from the power pulse would have damaged your eyes without protection. Pulse in T minus ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. The world, even through my visor, vanished in a wash of an all-pervading white, and I suddenly knew what the humans meant by a pulsed fusion power. Pulse complete, the speaker announced. I punched my visor back to clear and gave Mike my very best glare. That was a thermonuclear bomb! Mike grimaced painfully. No, no, absolutely not. Please don't call it that. A bomb is a weapon. Fusion pellets are safe and completely sustainable components of a peaceful power generation system. 
I continued to glare. And what, precisely, is the yield of one of those pellets? Mike scratched his head and looked uncomfortable. Less than uh, 50 megatons. We did eventually let them build it. Mind you, the permit process occasionally made me think back to the Cracticon incident with fondness. But still, it got through. How many races have dreamed of fusion power? It'll eventually revolutionize everything. End of story. Story number two. Desperate Measures, written by Tamwin5. Report on Anti-Terran Test Organism 376A-B. Imperial Bioweapons Division 3. As anyone who has been following the Terran conflict closely will know, they possess a fantastical resilience. Standard compliances viruses proved wholly ineffective, and even death plagues were fought off by the incredibly versatile immune system. With how disastrous the ground invasion has been, High Command has understandably committed effectively unlimited resources to the bioweapons divisions, in hopes of some miracle breakthrough. We have made that breakthrough. After test organism 129-K, we realized that most organic forms lack the mutability to be able to learn and evolve to counter the Terran immune system. As such, we moved to altering existing Terran organisms, which already had that mutability. Unfortunately, we had been unable to maintain the fast onset and high mortality required. Our intelligence agents have assured us that the moment we commit to a bio-warfare, Terrans will quickly contain and filter the air and water used. A swift, devastating plague is only successful option. The containment breach and loss of all personnel on Imperial Bioweapons Division 2 should underscore just how dangerous the microbes we were working with are. Future campaigns will rarely be beset by the issues we face today, considering how much we have discovered and put to use. The breakthrough came when we looked into larger organisms native to Sol 3. Terrans apparently have a psychological fear of a certain small anthropods as such. We have chosen two varieties of arachnid, Loxoskelis reclusa, brown recluse, and the Theraposa blonda, Goliath bird eater, and engineered them into the Terran's worst nightmare. Not only have we upgraded the venom they produce to be a paralytic and neurotoxin, but have also enhanced the efficiency of their reproduction and digestive enzymes, as well as color-shifting camouflage hairs. They will be deadly to Terrans, unable to survive on little food as they lay in ambush. Even a single Terran death would allow an upgraded Lexoskedes reclusa to feed more than 10,000 new spawn. We currently are pursuing research into hot, cold, and subaquatic varieties of arachnid. Humans will hide anywhere. These arachnids will do the same. Three months after the Imperium forces released bioengineered spiders onto Sol 3, Terran forces unleashed the remains of their nuclear arsenal, detonating at ground level every warhead and bomb that remained. Intercepted Terran communication indicated that justification for the near-suicidal move as, uh, It's the only way to be sure. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope... 
that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.